Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, delighted to be in Romans chapter 8 for the last time in this series. If you are here today for the first time, a huge welcome to you. And what we've been doing for the last few weeks is we've been going through what some theologians have described as the greatest chapter in the Bible, which is a pretty big statement to make, but it really has been fantastic. And we've discovered that in Romans chapter 8, this one particular chapter is just chocked full of these very powerful single statements all throughout it. And we've been taking a look at those together. So what I want to do by way of summary is I'd like to maybe just go back uh, a few inches and then catch up to where we are and kind of move on from there. If we were to take a look at the whole book of Romans and just kind of make a larger statement, the first section of it, chapters 1 through 7, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, if you've ever read it, and I do recommend it, uh, it's a bit of a tough read though. It's a little bit of a tough read. You could probably sit down in 15 or 20 minutes, depending on how fast of a reader you are, and look at those first few. And what it does, chapters 1 through 7, which we really haven't studied a lot, is it tells you and I your true condition under, and this is very language from Romans, under the law of God. And as I read it, or as you read it, if you want to take 20 minutes to do that, what you're going to find is that you cannot stand up straight under the weight and the burden of the law of God. And so those first few chapters are a little bit of a tough, tough read. The good thing about it, even though it's a tough read, is it tells you the truth. It kind of shows you where you're at. It's like an honest look in the mirror, and I think that is a good thing. So here's some of the language. It's a little bit on the heavy side, but see how this uh, feels first thing in the morning. Romans chapter 1 through 7 is going to tell you how utterly depraved you are. Delightful stuff. It's going to tell you about the curse of sin. And not just the curse of sin, but what it does to you. It's going to talk to you about your spiritual blindness, my spiritual deafness, the depths of our rebellion, and how ugly and dark that becomes. That we get to this place where our conscience actually becomes seared and numb. And then we're doing wrong things, but we don't even know it anymore. We don't feel that anymore. We don't feel the weight or the wrongness of that. And in that, we begin to think that we are wise. And then what creeps in after you think that you're wise, even though you're doing the wrong thing, is you begin to become riddled with pride and arrogance, and then you start just hurting yourself in your own life, mistreating other people, and zero regard for the one who made you. So it's not a very nice picture at all. And if you read it, it is painfully sort of sobering stuff, and it's a little bit hard to, to digest. Sometimes I find myself sort of turning the pages, just sort of feeling battered by God, by what God says about me in these first seven chapters. And then you get to chapter 8. Thank God for chapter 8 in the book of Romans. It is this midway point in the book. And that is where our attention has been over these last few weeks. It's a brush of fresh, uh, fresh air. But more than that, I think it's life-giving to know, yes, how bad things are, but what happens is when you turn the corner into chapter 8, you begin to discover actually how good things are, that they are wonderful. I think it's a good thing for me to have a grasp of how broken I am, because when I understand how broken I am, I begin to understand and appreciate 
and get filled with a gratitude for the healing work of God in my life. And without a grasp for the brokenness, I don't know if I understand the healing work of God. What happens to me then is I begin to become a man then who is filled with awe and worship and wonder and appreciation for my God. It, that simply goes up and up and up. It's good for you to capture a clear picture of just how dead and lost and helpless you are. It's good for you to understand that. Because when your eyes begin to see the supernatural work of God, you will be filled with worship. We are a people who need so much more than to be simply tweaked. We're not just a bunch of guys and girls who've got a few quirks. We are not a people who sometimes ought to be a little bit nicer. And maybe God could come to you today and give you some tips and some tricks so that we could all be a little bit more friendly. That is not the work of God at all. Here's what God does. He takes dead men and dead women and he brings them back to life. That's the work of God. So Romans chapter 1 through 7 is going to show you a picture of how dead you were. And then we see this resurrection life. That is the work of Jesus Christ. I would encourage you never to look back over your shoulder at your past, particularly without Christ, and think too highly of yourself. Because you are dead in Christ. That in and of itself is deceit. It is good for you to be keenly aware of how bad things are. So just for a moment or two, <laughs> I'm going to remind you. <laughs> Let me read you one or two little verses from a few of these early chapters in Romans. And I want you to appreciate and see the truth of where you're at. Chapter 1, verse 21. And remember, this is talking about you. Their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Isn't that lovely? Verse 25. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. It's talking about you. Verse 28, furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so there's no point in that, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. They became filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity. They're filled with envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, ar arrogant, and boastful. And in this phrase just blows me away. They invent ways of doing evil as if there are not already enough ways at our, so that we can access to do evil. We're like, let's conjure up and imagine fresh, innovative, creative ways that we can be evil. That's what it says of us. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. And although they know God's righteous decrees that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but they also approve of those who practice them. If ever there was a picture of our culture today, that is it right there. That is what is going on in this world. I know better. I know the consequences are awful. I'm going to do it anyway. And when I see other people doing evil things, this is what our culture is doing right now. Well done. Let's celebrate evil in your life. That's what's going on. And the scary part is, it's not just talking about culture, because that's the, that's the easy way out. Yes, that is true. It's talking about you and I. 
chapter 3, verse 10. Because you look at this and you say, surely it's not that bad. Tell me somebody's doing a good job somewhere. There's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's nobody who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. They're th- look at the very uh, grave um, language here. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. They are, their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Aren't you so glad you came to church this morning? Ouch! It's sobering stuff, yeah? It is. Anyone here still think that they're all that in the bag of chips? And Paul concludes chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7. And he says something that just makes perfect sense. It really does. In the light of all of those painful and agonizing words, here's what he says about himself in verse 24. Oh, what a wretched man I am. This is our true condition. This is the look in the mirror. And you're like, come on, chapter (laughs) 8. Can we turn the page now, please? Can we get out of this stuff? It's not very pleasant. Well, we're about to turn the page to chapter 8. But I want you to note one thing before we do that. Everything now changes when we get to chapter 8. Everything is hinging on one thing. Everything is about to pivot and turn and hinge, not on one thing actually, on one person. We get to chapter 8 and it begins to focus on the person of Jesus Christ. And these are the very final words of Paul. And we just read a little portion of it. I'm going to finish it out here. As he finishes these first seven chapters, he says, what a wretched man I am. We already read that. He says, who will rescue me from this body of death? And here's the turn. Here's the hinge. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. And now we turn the corner. He says, I've said all of this about you. And now what I want to do in the next few minutes, I want to remind you what we've been looking at over these few weeks in this series. Chapter 8, verse 1. Remember all of this hinging on the person of Jesus Christ. This is what God would say to you today despite all of these things being agonizingly true about you. Now, therefore, there is no condemnation for those of us who are in, in who? Christ Jesus. There's the hinge. Now, everything changes on this person. So now, despite all of those words about malice and evil and gossip and and death and no one doing good, now what we come to a place as we say, well, actually, for me, there's no condemnation under the law that I could not stand up straight in. I couldn't bear the weight and the burden of it. Now, that's gone. All of that has changed. Your condition has changed from, to use Paul's word, wretched to forgiven. Praise God. And now it says, the law of the spirit of life sets me free from the law of sin and death. Praise God. No more shame. No more guilt. No more finger pointing right back at you. No more condemnation. In fact, listen to this. If you ever hear that voice of condemnation, do you know that voice? You know that voice of condemnation? If you ever hear it in your life, guess what? That's not your father. 
can't be your father. Romans chapter 8 verse 1 says that's not how God speaks. Now God may convict you of sin, but he doesn't condemn you anymore if you are found in Christ Jesus. So now you will never know the wrath of God. Isn't this good? Now you will only ever know the smile of God over your life. You will never know the righteous anger of God. Praise God for that. You will never know God's judgment for your sins. <clears throat> you are in Christ Jesus. Chapter 8 moves on further, and we get this new identity in verse 15. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you receive the spirit of sonship, and by which we cry, Abba, Father. So before Christ, you were a slave. To what? To whom? Well, you were a slave to sin. You were a slave to your sinful nature. Did you get up first thing in the morning and you're just like, oh, I'm going in the direction of sin. It's like just automatic impulse, automatic pilot. You were a slave to the evil one, Satan. Satan, in the word of God, is most often depicted as a counterfeit. Satan, this evil one who hates you because you belong to the Father, he's most often depicted as an imitator, as a mime, as a mimic, as unoriginal, that he simply prints fake copies of the real thing, that he is a con man. But there is actually one occasion in Scripture where Satan is described as a creator, where he actually originates something and brings it to life he is called the father of lies. He originates something, because that doesn't come from God. If you are a father, you're giving life. You are beholden to that father. This is your true condition. You are as though hypnotized and entranced. He was pulling the strings all the time. But now all of that is broken in the name of Jesus Christ. And this scripture says, instead of that slavery, it is now sonship and daughtership where we cry out, Dad, Father, Abba. And we have instant access to God because of the person of Jesus Christ. Verse 28. And we know, and we know that in all of these things, no matter what happens in our lives, that God works for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. So look at you sitting there, all chosen by God. <laughs> look at you in Alma and online, hand-picked and selected, that the activity of God is such that no matter what comes your way, be it good or be it bad, whether you suffer tremendously or whether all is well with you in life, that you can be assured of this, that God is at work to bring about his goodness for you because you're his. And so he will extract beauty from something that is utterly ugly because he will bring his grace to bear. God does not promise you a, an easy life or a burden-free life. We'd like that, wouldn't we? But he doesn't. But this is what he says, I will take you through thick and thin and I will work in your life to make you more like Jesus Christ even when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And then if that is the case, we find ourselves able to speak this kind of truth. 
verse 31. If God is for us, then who can be against us? Amen? Who, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all of us, how will he not also along with him, with who? With the giving of his son, Jesus Christ, graciously give us all things. If God is for us, who can be against us? What a statement. Oftentimes, I think we think in black and white terms. You know, good and bad, day and night. And I think in when we do that, we mistakenly think that the universe has these two great big titans, that there is God and that there is Satan. What a mistake. Absolutely not. The evil one, Satan, is just a fallen angel. And don't get me wrong, his influence and his cunning is certainly a force to be reckoned with. But not for one second is there even the beginning of a comparison between God and Satan. Not even at all. It's not even like comparing a featherweight with a heavyweight that would be too much of a compliment to Satan. One day, our mighty king of kings will return and there will be no more pain and no more death and no more sickness. There simply is no comparison between God and Satan because our God is actually matchless. He has no rival. There's no one who even begins to compare with him. And when scripture asks the question, if God is for us, who can be against us? It is a rhetorical question. There's nobody who can be against you if God is for you. There's nobody who could possibly more, be more powerful than God. There's no one who can destroy you. Which brings us to this place today where we say, God, we trust in your word. And if this is true, if this is true, and, we're, and what we're saying is it is true that there is no more condemnation for us that our identity are now as sons and daughters, that we have instant access to our dad, that all things work together for our good because we love him and are called according to his purposes, that if it is true, and we believe it is, that God is for us, therefore that nobody can be against us, then hear these final words in this eighth magnificent chapter. Then what shall separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? Can you think of anything? Is there anything that can separate us from this love? No, no, no. In all of these things, we are more than conquerors. Ever been called that before? We are not conquerors. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, not the present or the future, nor any powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Somebody say, praise God. You're loved. You're loved. And I get it. Jesus loves you. It's cliche, isn't it? heard it before? I've heard it a million times before. I need you to hear it afresh because this scripture is saying not only are you loved but that knot cannot be untied. Very specifically and it's giving us a grandiose description of things that could attempt to untie this knot 
and Scripture is telling us. This cannot be separated. It will not. Why does this text emphasize this idea that you will never be separated from God's love? That you'll never be separated from the person of Jesus Christ? The reason this is so specific in the text and so deliberate is because what is the definition of hell? Eternity in hell is an eternity of separation from God. Paul is wrapping up Romans chapter 8 by telling you, not only are you loved by God, but that love is guaranteed and permanent, and it will be throughout eternity with him. You are inseparable from our Father. For goodness sake, look at the extent that Jesus has gone to. Do you really think after the cross, that he's going to allow any little thing to get in the way of his relationship with you? Do you really think after the cross that he's going to allow any variable to snatch that away? And the scripture makes a huge claim. You are loved by Abba Father and nothing from your past or your present or your future. No angel, no demon, no power, nothing else. There's no height, there's no depth. There's simply nothing, not even death, not even your life is going to separate you from the love of God. Perhaps the challenge with Romans 8 is that it says such huge things, and they're all wonderful, right? It is like such a contrast from Romans 1 through 7. It's such a breath of fresh air. Perhaps the difficulty in when Scripture says, look, you're not just a conqueror, you're more than a conqueror, is that then you look in the mirror and you're like, really? I don't see it. You look in the mirror and you're like, Romans chapter 1 through 7, I see it. Romans chapter 8, not so much. I get it. And here's what you need to know. Romans chapter 8 is describing, and this is the exact language, life through the Spirit. Don't miss it. In fact, if you look at any truth in Romans chapter 8 and you're like, I don't know. I don't know if love can be separated. I don't know if I'm more than a conqueror. I don't know about condemnation. Maybe that could come my way. I don't know if I get to cry out with no fear. I'm not longer a slave to fear, but actually that I could say I'm a son or I'm a daughter and I could call him a father. I don't know if he's for me. If you find yourself fighting with this truth, if there's a deficit of this truth in your life, here's what it means. It means there's probably a deficit of you living through the Spirit of God in your life. Romans chapter 8 is describing the man or woman who is riddled and saturated with the Spirit of God. And you need to know this. This is your right this is freedom that is right there for you. In fact, it is your obligation, it is your responsibility to live the life of more than a conqueror. You have this right and this ability to live a life with the Spirit of God. The high calling of any follower of Jesus Christ is that you're more than a conqueror. And it begs the question, well, Pastor Allen, I'd love that. So how do I live my life in and through the Spirit of God? Am I doing that right now? I don't know if I'm doing that. How do I do that? Well, sometimes I think we wake up in the morning and it's like the dial is set in the wrong place, like an on-off switch. Sometimes I think we wake up in the morning and it's like automatically you're like, man, the dial is in the wrong place again. And it was that way yesterday and the day before and the month before that. 
It's as though we wake up in the morning, and this is the language of the New Testament. I think it'll make sense. It says, the dial is set in flesh mode. What does that mean, flesh? It's this, me, what I want. It's like I wake up in the morning and everything, every compulsion inside of me wants to go in the satisfy me mode rather than live in the Spirit of God mode. Our minds wake up more attentive to our sinful natures rather than to the Spirit of God. The reason why I know that you know this is true is because you've experienced this thousands of times. You know this to be true. Paul lays it out clearly. He says, verse 12, therefore, brothers, this dial is in the wrong position. He says, you have an obligation. But it's not to the sinful nature. It's not to live according to that. Obedience, in Romans chapter 8, is that you wake up in the morning and you reset the dial. And this is how Paul puts it. He says, by the Spirit, you put to death the misdeeds of the body. So tomorrow morning when you wake up, I want you to do two things. How many of you are avid hit the snooze button people? Before you hit snooze, I want you to do this. This is your homework for tomorrow morning. I want you to wake up in the morning, and the number one thing I want you to do is I want you to say this. I'm loved by God. Go for it. It's a good way to start your day. Tomorrow morning, first thing you wake up, before you hit snooze, eyes open up. I'm loved by God. This is a great way to start your day in the Spirit of God. The second thing I want you to do is I want you to reset the dial. I want you to say, yes, I'm loved by God. The only way I'm going to face the next 24 hours is with the help of the Holy Spirit. I want you to go there in your mind. Maybe you need to say this. Maybe you need to think this. And here's what it is. Before I put one foot out of this bed... Father, fill me with your Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, I want you active in my life today. In fact, Holy Spirit, my tendency is to submit myself to what I want, my flesh. I'm not doing that today. Before I get one foot out of bed, I'm going to say this to you. I'm submitting my life to the person of the Holy Spirit. That's what I'm doing. And so right now, Holy Spirit, would you empower me and would you influence me and would you speak to me and would you fill me with your power? Would you breathe on me before I get out of bed? I want to be attentive to you because this is what I know about myself. I'm so prone to wander in the wrong direction. Can I get an amen on that? I'm so prone, I know this about myself, to go in the wrong direction. And so before I have one opportunity to already do that, before I get out of this bed, I'm going to cry out to Abba Father, fill, my, fill me with your mind and your heart and your word and your presence and your power to live today and then put one foot out of the bed. And then live and experience the next 24 hours through the Spirit of God. And in that, what Jesus is actually doing is he's bringing you the assurance of his love in the reality of a normal day. And when you go through that day, experiencing his love, you will discover that this is a safe place to live. Really? Our universe? 
a safe place to live. Yeah. Actually, this discovery gets made over and over again in Scripture. A lion's den. A safe place to live. Mm -hmm. A fiery furnace. Pharaoh's prison. The floor of the Red Sea. Is that a safe place to live? Yep. In a boat in the middle of a violent storm. All of these things seem like the most dangerous place to live, but it turns out they're the safest place of all. It really is true. Our universe is the safest place to live. And it's not because bad things don't happen. Of course, that's not what I'm saying. But because who can separate me from the love of God today as I live this day filled with the Spirit of God? Will hardship or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword, the worst weapons that this world can throw at us or unleash towards us are powerless before that kind of love. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because God takes away all my problems? No, because he's with me in the valley of the shadow of death. Nothing can separate me from his love. Not failure, not cancer, not bankruptcy, not loneliness, not even death itself. No matter the obstacle or the lie or the enemies, they simply don't compare to God. And although you go through days that can be difficult, you need to hold on to this truth that one day our God will roar. And until that day, he calls you to live by faith not by sight, through the Spirit of God. An author, Orberg, tells a story. A mother wakes in the middle of the night during a thunderstorm. She quickly hurries to her son's room after a particularly bright flash, knowing that he's going to be terrified. And to her surprise, he's standing looking outside the window. Mom, I was looking outside, he says. And you'll never guess what happened. God took my picture. You see, this child was convinced that God was at work and therefore the universe was a safe place to be. What would it look like if you settled into this conviction that you're loved by God and there's nothing anyone can do or say to ever change that? No demon, no future, no power, no death, no height, no depth. Nothing in all of creation will ever separate you from this love because of Jesus Christ? What if you lived in the competency and the character of a God who would say to you, I will bring you into a safe place with me because you can never be separated from my love? I'll tell you what would happen. Your anxiety would go down. You would have a settled trust that your life is perfectly at rest in his hands. You would not be as tormented by your own inadequacy. You would be an unhurried person. You might be busy. You might have a lot to do. But you would walk around with an inner calm because you are carrying the presence of God. You would not say as many foolish things as you say right now where you speak and then think afterwards because you would be carrying with you the love of God. You would not be defined and defeated by guilt because you would refuse to live in condemnation. You would live simply in the confidence of his love. 
and you would trust God enough to risk obeying him, you wouldn't have to hoard. You wouldn't have to worry, which just places the focus on yourself and robs you of joy and energy and compassion. Thank you, God, for your inseparable love. We're going to break bread together. Today, I want to invite you to celebrate what Christ did for you so that you would experience a love that could never, ever, ever go away. We're going to break bread and we have some juice and we right now are going to remember and honor the extent of his great love for every one of us. Do you know what the extent of his love was? That would be the cross. So would you take a moment right now, online, and in Alma, and in Mount Pleasant, and would you perhaps bow your head and close your eyes? And I want to encourage you right now to actually repent of your sins, to come before God and to ask Him forgiveness, to come before God and to thank Him for His love that can never be untied, never be undone, and never be separated. Bless you, Jesus. Thank you, God. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he'd given thanks, he broke it and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake of the bread together. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's partake of the juice together. Jesus, thank you for the cross. Thank you for your body broken and for your blood shed. Thank you for no condemnation or guilt or shame anymore because of that, because we live in the new covenant. Thank you for the promise of your love that we cannot be separated, that you call us to live a life filled with your spirit, that we are to be more than conquerors, that you are for us, that no one can be against us, and that you are at work doing a good work even when things are tough and even when things are good. Father, today we worship you and we praise you and we honor you, and we adore you, and we thank you. There is no one like Jesus. There is no one who even begins to compare to the Son of God. We give you thanks in the name of Jesus. Amen. Can we stand and let's worship.